You're listening to A Prophet, a collaboration between Sakhlain and Al-Hujja Islamic Seminary. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming our patron by donating at sakhlain.org support. Now there's an interesting hadith. I'd like to analyze this hadith with you, my dear brothers and sisters. That's found in Sahih Muslim. Bab Fadail, they have a whole chapter in Sahih Muslim. What's it called? Bab Fadail Abi Sufyan ibn Harb. Abu Sufyan, right? The one who was the leader of the pagans before the conquest of Mecca. Sahih Muslim has a whole chapter praising Abu Sufyan. So in that chapter, look at this interesting hadith. Ibn Abbas supposedly says in this hadith, كَانَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ لَا يَنْظُرُونَ إِلَىٰ أَبِي سُفْيَانَ وَلَا After the conquest of Mecca, Muslims would not look at Abu Sufyan, they would not sit with him. Why? He was the staunch enemy. And because the Prophet became strong and he entered Mecca triumphantly, he submitted. Otherwise, Abu Sufyan was known to mobilize people and the pagans and the mushrikeen against the Prophet As a result, his social status went down. People didn't care about him. Ah, this, you know, yeah, right now you declared your Islam in public, but we know your history. So now Abu Sufyan got upset. Abu Sufyan loved having a social status. He, he was obsessed with that. So he came to the Prophet and he says, Ya Nabi Allah, I have three requests from you, Ya Nabi Allah. Please give me three, grant me three requests. He says, yes, Abu Sufyan. He says, number one, I have my daughter, Um Habiba. She's my daughter and she's very beautiful. I want you to marry her, number one. Number two, I want you to make my son Muawiyah katiban bayna yadayk. Make Muawiyah, my son, a scribe, a writer between you, for you. And number three, command me to kill now the pagans. Just like I used to fight the Muslims before, but now I'd like to fight the pagans. So give me that honor, give me the command so I can go and say, Rasulullah command me to fight. He just wants the fame and the reputation. Abu Zamil, the one who, narr- who witnessed this incident, he says that the Prophet says, okay, I grant you these three. And the Prophet didn't really want to, but because he had the akhlaq that in, he would never say no to anyone, he said, okay, Ya Abu Sufyan, I'll give you these three. Even though Abu Sufyan acquired status from this request. Let's analyze this hadith in Sahih Muslim. We have several reservations about this hadith. Yes, the Prophet would never say no. But you see how they make this a fadila for Abu Sufyan, right? Number one, the hadith states that Abu Sufyan told the Prophet, I want to acquire status, right? So marry my daughter Um Habiba, so you become my son-in-law, I become your father-in-law. And the father-in-law of the Prophet has a lot of status. What's problematic about this hadith historically? 
historical accuracy. What's, what's, what's the problem with this hadith? What do you know about Um Habiba from last year? No, not that she died, but when did the Prophet marry her? Remember, the Prophet married Um Habiba according to historical sources when Abu Sufyan was still the leader of the Kuffar. Remember, she was in Habasha. Her husband defected and he left the religion of Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ, to honor that sacrifice of migrating to Habasha and she lost her husband and she basically lost everything and she was in the end a Muslim, she had declared Islam and now her father is the leader of the pagans so how is she going to go back to Mecca? To honor her the Prophet married her and remember the hadith that we talked about that the Prophet said to Najashi the leader, the king of Habasha, I want to propose through you to Um Habiba because now you're the just uh, king, so I, I'd like to do that with you. And so the Prophet married her. The Prophet married her when Abu Sufyan was still a kafir, whereas this hadith is suggesting that he married her after the conquest of Mecca when Abu Sufyan became a Muslim. That's historically wrong. So this part of the hadith, it's questionable, you know, it's dubious. We're not sure if that's authentic or not. By the way, if you remember from last year, we mentioned the reasons why the Prophet would do that. But one argument that Muslims from other schools of thought usually use is that, you know, if the Prophet marries someone, then basically he is glorifying her father and giving him status, right? And they implement that on Aisha and Hafsa to make Abu Bakr and Umar, you know, feel, seem very, very important and of high status because he's the father-in-law of the Prophet Well, in his own lifetime, the Prophet had a kafir father-in-law. So that says nothing about the status of being a father-in-law. You could have a father-in-law who is the leader of mushrikeen, mobilizing people against the Prophet. So just because he, they were his, his, his father-in-law, that that's not any virtue. That doesn't mean they're good people, they're righteous people. And the, the proof is Abu Sufyan, when he became the father-in-law of the Prophet, he was a kafir, he was not even a Muslim. So that's the first part of the hadith that we have reservations about. The second part, Abu Sufyan asked the Prophet to assign his son Muawiyah, Muawiyah is the son of who? Abu Sufyan, right? He asked the Prophet to assign Muawiyah as a katib, as a scribe, who records and writes on behalf of the Prophet because remember the Prophet never practiced reading or writing so he had someone do that for him. Now Sunnis throughout history have considered this a big virtue for Muawiyah to the point where they call him Katib al-Wahi. What does Katib al-Wahi mean? The, the transcriber of revelation. And they give him the status that it's through the efforts of Muawiyah the Qur'an survived because he was the transcriber of revelation. They hint that, they indirectly try to insinuate that it was through the writings of Muawiyah of the revelation and Qur'an that Allah protected the Qur'an, giving him a huge virtue. Katab al-Wahi, until today you see the Salafis, those extremists praising Muawiyah saying he is Katab al-Wahi. What's our response to that? Yes, we'll get to that, that he wrote some letters. 
but let's look at the argument itself. Number one, they make it seem like he preserved the Quran. That's false. Muawiyah converted when? The year of the conquest of Mecca. How many years after Revelation was that? That's like almost 20 years, 19 years. Remember, this is year seven of the Hijrah. That's three years before the Prophet passed away. The Prophet had been preaching Revelation for 20 years now. Suddenly, this Muawiyah pops at the end of the Prophet's life and somehow he preserved the Quran. What kind of inaccurate statement is that? Exactly, same, same way that Abu Huraira, last two years he joins the Prophet and he has the most hadiths in Bukhari and others. So Muawiyah converted after the conquest of Mecca. Most of the Quran had been revealed and most of the Quran had been transcribed. By who? By for instance Zayd ibn Thabit, Imam Ali salam. They had written the Quran, it was there in the Masjid of the Prophet, you could see the pages. So for them to come and give the idea, the impression that Muawiyah preserved Quran, that's false. Number two, what Brother Ali said. We have narrations that make it very clear, even Sunni narrations. Dhahabi, a Sunni scholar and historian, Ibn Hajar. They state that Zayd ibn Thabit would write the Quran, Revelation, whereas Muawiyah would write letters for the Prophet when the Prophet wanted to communicate with Arab tribes. Muawiyah knew how to read, read and write. So let's say the Prophet wanted to send a letter to X person, X tribe. Sometimes who would write the letter for him? Muawiyah. It's not like he preserved the Quran, he just wrote some letters. Is that a big virtue? No. What kind of a virtue is that? Number three, let's assume Muawiyah transcribed the Quran. Let's assume. That's not a virtue in the sense that it means he's automatically a good or righteous person. Why? I'll give you the example of Abdullah ibn Sa'd ibn Abi Sarh. Abdullah ibn Sa'd ibn Abi Sarh, he was the brother of Uthman ibn Affan from Rida'a, from Suckling. He was amongst the first ones to write the Quran in Mecca when he was with Quraysh. So this man, the brother, of Uthman in Rada'a, he was amongst the first to write the Quran in Mecca. Then you know what happened to him? He became an apostate. kufar. He became an apostate. This hadith is in Nasa'i and Abu Dawood. These are what type of sources? Shia or Sunni sources? Sunni sources. So Nasa'i, hadith 4069, Abu Dawood, hadith 4358, and Albani says, this hadith is good. It's a good, solid hadith. Ibn Abbas says in this hadith, Kana Abdullah ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Sarh yaktubu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa This man would write for the Prophet. فَأَزَلَّهُ الشَّيْطَانِ Shaytan played with him, he slipped. فَلَحِقَ بِالْكُفَّارِ He went and he joined. The kuffar after became after he had become Muslim. And then he started to slander the Prophet and defame the Prophet. Now what does the Sunni hadith state? فَأَمَرَ بِهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ أَنْ يُقْتَلْ يَوْمَ الْفَتْحِ The Prophet when he entered Mecca, 
He forgave everyone during the conquest of Mecca. According to these Sunni hadiths, he says there is three, even if you find them holding the Kaaba, kill them. One of them is who? Abdullah ibn Sa'd. This person here, Abdullah ibn Sa'd ibn Abi Sarh. So the Prophet ordered for this man to be killed, even though he had written the Quran in Mecca. So does the act of just writing or trans transcribing the Quran mean you're a good person? No. Let's say, let's say for the sake of argument, Muawiyah did for a couple of years write the Quran. How does that make him a good person? You have an example of someone who did what Muawiyah did by writing the Quran supposedly, yet he apostated, he became an apostate. Now interestingly, if you want to know what happened in Mecca when uh, supposedly the Prophet said kill him, because he was the brother of who? In Rada'a of Uthman ibn Affan, when he heard that the prophets, you know, ordered for his blood to be spilled, he went hiding in whose house? Uthman, he went into Uthman's house. Uthman found him hiding in his house, so he tells him, look, my brother, I came to you, to your house, please go to Muhammad, and tell him to forgive me, I'll submit right now, I don't want to be killed. So Uthman comes to the Prophet ﷺ, he tells him come with me, it's okay, I'll go to the Prophet, I'll intercede for you and I'll ask the Prophet to forgive you. So they take him to the Prophet ﷺ, Uthman says to the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, his mother used to carry me, she used to breastfeed me, because remember they're brothers in suckling, and she has, has many favors on me. And then Uthman started to kiss the Prophet, begging him to forgive this evil man who had apostated, but now he came apologizing. So after a long while, the Prophet says, okay, I forgive him. So he pledged allegiance to the Prophet. That's what happened. Now later, he, when he became Muslim, he came. Later we find the Sahaba of the Prophet giving him a big role. For instance, Umar ibn al-Khattab, he gave him the governorship of Sa'id. When they say Sa'id, where is that? We have two Sa'ids. We have Sa'id Misr and we also have Sa'id Yemen. There are two areas with this name. And then Uthman ibn Affan, when he came, he gave him the wilaya of Misr, the governorship of Egypt in the year 27 after the Hijrah. Subhanallah, it's very fascinating how these companions who supposedly love the Prophet so much, someone who apostated, and the Prophet, according to their sources, wanted to have him killed. Yes, later he came and he said, I am Muslim, and he became one of the Muslims. But you come and give him such an important role of a governorship and many other good companions of the Prophet you exiled. Uthman exiles Abu Dhar to the Rabada, but he gives this man who apostated during the time of the Prophet, he gives him the governorship of Egypt. Look at the double standards here. That's very sad. So this whole idea of Uthman, of Muawiyah being Katib al-Wahi has no basis. First of all, as we said, he would write some letters. Number two, it's not a virtue. There are other companions who did the same and they apostated. 
So what kind of a virtue is that for Muawiyah? And he did not preserve the Quran. Today the Salafis will give you the impression that two people in history preserved Quran. And their role was even greater than the Prophet, the way they sounded. One is Muawiyah Katib al-Wahi and the second is Uthman. They believe who was Jama'a al-Quran, he collected the Quran and these two preserved the Quran and both is false. Muawiyah had nothing to do with the preservation of the Quran and neither did Uthman in the sense that he gathered the Quran. No, the Quran was gathered. What happened during his caliphate is that the versions were unified. There were many versions in the Muslim Ummah. Kufa had one version. Because remember, at the time Arabic was not standardized. So people had different ways of writing the words. So sometimes that would cause a slight difference in the pronunciation, right? So at the time of Uthman, what happened is, he burned all those other versions and copies and he kept one copy to be reproduced in those cities. That's all that happened. The Quran was there and it was well preserved and it was collected and gathered. It's not that he gathered the Holy Quran. He unified the versions. Of course we have hadith that Imam Ali gave him that suggestion. Uh, in order to close the door on people playing around with the Quran and to unify it, have one standard text, Imam Ali says, I approve the idea, or he suggested to him the idea, let's have one version. Any questions on that? Yes. Yes. Prophet Muhammad never wrote. He would orally, verbally speak it. His companions would write it. Now there were scattered papers. Each companion had, you know, several surahs maybe. We believe, according to correct sources, most of the Qur'an was gathered at the time of the Prophet. Now, there were maybe some pages that needed to be finalized. Imam Ali السلام, after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, did not leave his house until he finished gathering the Qur'an in sequence. And then he came out and he gave the Qur'an to the Muslims. Yeah, so the Prophet never wrote the Qur'an. No, he would speak it only and the companions would write it. Yes, brother. Um, there, there have been some uh, you know, manuscripts of the Quran found with us and other manuscripts. And then the reply given to those you know, academics who try to uh, attack Islam and say, oh, your Quran is changed or this or that, is that no, these are the versions that weren't burned. They were just you know, the previous version and then the correct version was written on top or something. So is it possible that uh, you know not every single copy was burnt uh, in the time? It is possible that every single copy was not burnt because remember there were people who may have had personal copies stored in their homes and there was no way to track that. Yeah, but but the thing is we know that the main copies of the Quran uh, you had access to in those cities because first of all most people at the time of Uthman we're talking about right not Imam al-Sadiq at the time of Uthman most people were still illiterate so those who could read and write there were just a few number two to have that much paper you know today in the fine paper of the Quran we've got like 600 pages now imagine if the paper is thicker and that time sometimes they had to use uh, paper made from deer skin right yeah that's the type of paper they didn't have the processing machines that we have today, you take leaves or bark and conveniently, especially in the deserts of Arabia, right? 
So not anybody could write the whole Qur'an in a complete book format. So it's very unlikely that you had full, you know, pages and scripts of the Qur'an that were not burned by Uthman. Yes, one possibility is some people may have had like a surah in their house. They've written it, three pages, five pages, ten pages. Did all those get burned? Probably not. Some of those may have survived, yes. But remember, here's our argument, even those pages, they were not different from the mainstream Qur'an. It's just that maybe there were some spelling mistakes. Or you know today the Qur'an is not that consistent with some of the spelling and its calligraphy, right? Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, with Ibrahim there is a ya, sometimes there is no ya. Um, sometimes the ta, the t is a long t, sometimes it's a shorter t. The same exact word, like Rahma, Rahmatullah, uh, it's usually with the small ta' marbuta. Sometimes they would write it with a long ta' because Arabic was not standardized. But the end you would read it, Rahma, Rahmatullah, right? This would happen sometimes in the Holy Quran. But that does not mean that this was a change in the Holy Quran, it's just a different way of writing it. So, yes, we do acknowledge that some papers probably did survive. So that's a very good question. When it comes to Nahu, the laws of Arabic grammar, we've got a lot of evidence that Imam Ali taught the science to Abu Aswad al-Du'ali and after that Arabic grammar was standardized and formally taught. Before that Arabs just knew it growing up in Arabia but it was not standardized. Imam Ali standardized it by teaching one of his companions Abu Aswad al-Du'ali. It's also reported that Imam Ali introduced the dot system as well. He told Abu Aswad to distinguish the letters, we also have the dot system. Now at the time of Imam Ali, it still was not widespread, it's, this art was still not mastered by the people, that's why today if you look at the old Kufi script, there's still no dots on it. This became widespread at the time of Al-Imam As-Sadiq at the time of Imam al-Sadiq we find that all the copies of the Qur'an basically began using the dot system because in Arabic the ta and the ba and the tha, if you remove the dots they look the same, the jim and the ha and the kha they look the same, the qaf and the fa they look the same, so they basically put those uh, markers with the dots to distinguish them. Now why is it that some of our, of our scholars believe Imam Ali introduced it? when he gave that knowledge to Abu Aswad. Two pieces of evidence, number one, Imam Ali has a khutbah, a sermon free of dots. Have you seen? That means Imam Ali impromptu gave a sermon using 14 letters of the alphabet because half of the 28 letters in Arabic have dots. So B, T, Tha, Kha, Jim, Ghain, the, yeah, the Imam did, could not use. Imagine, like the L does not have a dot, so you could use it. The Meme, you could use it, but the Noon, the N, you cannot. Can you give a speech like that? I mean, impromptu, somebody tells you give a speech right now, don't use half of the ABCD letters. Can you do that? Like, which computer can do that? But Imam Ali gave that sermon, 
and once he gave a sermon without the letter Alif, he was challenged. By the way, these, these sermons are available today, you can read them in Arabic. Somebody challenged Imam Ali in a long story. He told him, okay, if you really are an Imam and you have that knowledge, give a speech right now without the letter Alif because it's the most common, frequent letter in Arabic. A, can you say a sentence without the letter A? Like impromptu just right off the bat? It's impossible, how can you pull that off? The Imam gave an entire sermon without the letter Alif. Sermon, full sermon, not a word, not a <laughs> paragraph, a full sermon. So scholars have say, who believe this uh, sermon is accurate because of the power of its content, they say if Imam Ali is giving a sermon without dots, then there must have been some conception of the dot system. He probably introduced it. Now another counter argument is that Imam Ali, through this sermon, he actually performed a miracle. The dot system was not yet introduced, but the Imam said a sermon. In the future, we discover what's special about the sermon, that there's no dots in it. Yes, the one that, that's without a doubt, without doubts, assuming that we take the second opinion, then it was, must not have been a challenge. It's just a sermon the Imam gave. Later, people are like, wait a minute, this has no dots, when they found the dot system. So this is one proof. The second proof, the Imam السلام, in describing the tafsir of the Basmala, the Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, the Imam says, I am the dot and the ba of the Basmala. Now what that means, that's a whole discussion. We need a full hour to discuss what the Imam means by that. So scholars are saying that if there was no dot system, then that doesn't make sense. How can the Imam says, I am the dot in the Basmala, of the ba of the Basmala. So, some of our scholars believe Imam Ali introduced the dot system. But do we have like solid concrete evidence? Honestly, no. Like historical evidence. The historical evidence seems to point uh, to the fact that during the time of Imam al-Sadiq yes, it became widespread and Arabic was becoming standardized. Not that I've seen. Maybe the Imam had a role in that and, and probably advocating for this. But, for the, but that Imam al-Sadiq established this or he introduced it, I've not seen anything in history that would confirm that.